This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Robert Browning by G. K. Chesterton. Section 23. Chapter 8. The Philosophy of Browning. Part 2. Now the supreme value of Browning as an optimist lies in this that we have been examining, that beyond all his conclusions, and deeper than all his arguments, he was passionately interested in, and in love with, existence. If the heavens had fallen, and all the waters of the earth run with blood, he would still have been interested in existence. If possible, a little more so. He is a great poet of human joy, for precisely the reason of which Mr. Santayana complains that his happiness is primal and beyond the reach of philosophy. He is something far more convincing, far more comforting, far more religiously significant than an optimist. He is a happy man. This happiness he finds, as every man must find happiness, in his own way. He does not find the great part of his joy in those matters in which most poets find felicity. He finds much of it in those matters in which most poets find ugliness and vulgarity. He is, to considerable extent, the poet of towns. Do you care for nature much? a friend asked him. Yes, a great deal, he said, but for human beings a great deal more. Nature, with its splendid and soothing sanity, has the power of convincing most poets of the essential worthiness of things. There are few poets who, if they escaped from the rowdiest wagonette of trippers, could not be quieted again and exalted by dropping into a small wayside field. The speciality of Browning is rather that he would have quieted and exalted by the wagonette. To Browning, probably the beginning and end of all optimism was to be found on the faces in the street. To him they were all the masks of a deity, the heads of a hundred-headed Indian god of nature. Each of them looked towards some quarter of the heavens, not looked upon by any other eyes. Each of them wore some expression, some blend of eternal joy and eternal sorrow, not to be found in any other countenance. The sense of the absolute sanctity of human difference was the deepest of all his senses. He was hungrily interested in all human things, but it would have been quite impossible to have said of him that he loved humanity. He did not love humanity, but men. His sense of the difference between one man and another would have made the thought of melting them into a lump called humanity simply loathsome and prosaic. It would have been to him like playing four hundred beautiful airs all at once. The mixture would not combine at all, it would lose all. Browning believed that to every man that ever lived upon this earth had been given a definite and peculiar confidence of God. Each one of us was engaged on a secret service. Each one of us had a peculiar message. Each one of us was the founder of a religion. Of that religion, our thoughts, our faces, our bodies, our hats, our boots, our tastes, our virtues, and even our vices, were more or less fragmentary and inadequate expressions. In the delightful memoirs of that very remarkable man, Sir Charles Gavin Duffy, there is an extremely significant and interesting anecdote about Browning the point of which appears to have attracted very little attention. Duffy was dining with Browning and John Forrester, 
and happened to make some chance allusion to his own adherence to the Roman Catholic faith, when Forrester remarked, half-jesting, that he did not suppose that Browning would like him any the better for that. Browning would seem to have opened his eyes with some astonishment. He immediately asked why Forster should suppose him hostile to the Roman Church. Forster and Duffy replied almost simultaneously by referring to Bishop Blougram's apology, which had just appeared, and asking whether the portrait of the sophistical and self-indulgent priest had not been intended for a satire on Cardinal Wiseman. Certainly, replied Browning cheerfully, I intended it for Cardinal Wiseman but I don't consider it a satire. There's nothing hostile about it. This is the real truth which lies at the heart of what may be called the great sophistical monologues which Browning wrote in later years. They are not satires or attacks upon their subjects. They are not even harsh and unfeeling exposures of them. They are defenses. They say, or are intended to say, the best that can be said for the persons with whom they deal but very few people in this world would care to listen to the real defense of their own characters. The real defense, the defense which belongs to the Day of Judgment, would make such damaging admissions, would clear away so many artificial virtues, would tell such tragedies of weakness and failure, that a man would sooner be misunderstood and censured by the world than exposed to that awful and merciless eulogy. One of the most practically difficult matters which arise from the code of manners and the conventions of life is that we cannot properly justify a human being because that justification would involve the admission of things which may not conventionally be admitted. We might explain and make human and respectable, for example, the conduct of some old fighting politician who, for the good of his party and his country, acceded to measures of which he disapproved. But we cannot, because we are not allowed to admit that he ever acceded to measures of which he disapproved. We might touch the life of many dissolute public men with pathos and a kind of defeated courage by telling the truth about the history of their sins, but we should throw the world into an uproar if we hinted that they had any. Thus the decency of civilization do not merely make it impossible to revile a man, they make it impossible to praise him. Browning, in such poems as Bishop Blougram's Apology, breaks his first mask of goodness in order to break the second mask of evil, and gets to the real goodness at last. He dethrones a saint in order to humanize a scoundrel. This is one typical side of the real optimism of Browning, and there is indeed little danger that such optimism will become weak and sentimental and popular. The refuge of every idler, the excuse of every ne'er-do-well, there is little danger that men will desire to excuse their souls before God by presenting themselves before men as such snobs as Bishop Blougram, or such dastards as Sludge the Medium. There is no pessimism, however stern, that is so stern as this optimism. It is as merciless as the mercy of God. It is true that in this, as in almost everything else connected with Browning's character, the matter cannot be altogether exhausted by such generalization as the above. Browning's was a simple character, and therefore very difficult to understand, since it was impulsive, unconscious, and kept no reckoning of its moods. Probably in a great many cases the original impulse which led Browning to plan a soliloquy was a kind of anger mixed with curiosity. Possibly the first charcoal sketch of Blougram was the caricature of a priest, 
Browning, as we have said, had prejudices and had a capacity for anger, and two of his angriest prejudices were against a certain kind of worldly clericalism and against almost every kind of spiritualism. But as he worked upon the portraits, at least, a new spirit began to possess him, and he enjoyed every spirited and just defense the men could make of themselves, like triumphant blows in a battle, and toward the end would come the full revelation, and Browning would stand up in the man's skin and testify to the man's ideals. However this may be, it is worth while to notice one very curious error that has arisen in connection with one of the most famous of these monologues. When Robert Browning was engaged in that somewhat obscure quarrel with the spiritualist home, it is generally and correctly stated that he gained a great number of the impressions which he afterwards embodied in Mr. Sludge the Medium, the statement so often made particularly in the spiritualist accounts of the matter, that Browning himself is the original of the interlocutor and exposer of Sludge, is of course merely an example of that reckless reading from which no one has suffered more than Browning, despite his students and societies. The man to whom Sludge addresses his confession is a Mr. Hiram H. Horsfall, an American, a patron of spiritualists, and, as it is more than once suggested, something of a fool. Nor is there the smallest reason to suppose that Sludge, considered as an individual, bears any particular resemblance to home, considered as an individual. But without doubt, Mr. Sludge the medium is a general statement of the view of spiritualism at which Browning had arrived from his acquaintance with home and home circle. And about that view of spiritualism there is something rather peculiar to notice. The poem, appearing as it did at the time when the intellectual public had just become conscious of the existence of spiritualism, attracted a great deal of attention and aroused a great deal of controversy. The spiritualists called down thunder upon the head of the poet whom they depicted as a vulgar and ribald lampooner who had not only committed the profanity of sneering at the mysteries of a higher state of life, but the more unpardonable profanity of sneering at the convictions of his own wife. The skeptics, on the other hand, hailed the poem with delight as a blasting exposure of spiritualism, and congratulated the poet on making himself the champion of the sane and scientific view of magic. Which of these two parties was right about the question of attacking the reality of spiritualism is neither easy nor necessary to discuss. For the simple truth which neither of the two parties and none of the students of Browning seem to have noticed is that Mr. Sludge the Medium is not an attack upon spiritualism. It would be a great deal nearer the truth, though not entirely the truth, to call it a justification of spiritualism. The whole essence of Browning's method is involved in this matter, and the whole essence of Browning's method is so vitally misunderstood that to say that Mr. Sludge the Medium is something like a defense of spiritualism will bear on the face of it the appearance of the most empty and perverse of paradoxes. But so, when we have comprehended Browning's spirit, the fact will be found to be. The general idea is that Browning must have intended sludge for an attack on spiritual phenomena, because the medium in that poem is made a vulgar and contemptible mountebank, because his cheats are quite openly confessed, and he himself put into every ignominious situation detected, exposed, throttled, horsewhipped, and forgiven. To regard this deduction as sound, 
is to misunderstand Browning at the very start of every poem that he ever wrote. There is nothing the man loved more, nothing that deserves more emphatically to be called a speciality of Browning, than the utterance of large and noble truths by the lips of mean and grotesque human beings. In his poetry, praise and wisdom were perfected not only out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, but out of the mouths of swindlers and snobs. Now what, as a matter of fact, is the outline and development of the poem of Sludge? The climax of the poem, considered as a work of art, is so fine that it is quite extraordinary that anyone should have missed the point of it, since it is the whole point of the monologue. Sludge, the medium, has been caught out in a piece of unquestionable trickery, a piece of trickery for which there is no conceivable explanation or palliation which will leave his moral character intact. He is therefore seized with a sudden resolution, partly angry, partly frightened, and partly humorous, to become absolutely frank and to tell the whole truth about himself for the first time, not only to his dupe, but to himself. He excuses himself for the earlier stages of the trickster's life by a survey of the borderland between truth and fiction, not by any means a piece of sophistry or cynicism, but a perfectly fair statement of an ethical difficulty which does exist. There are some people who think that it must be immoral to admit that there are any doubtful cases of morality, as if a man should refrain from discussing the precise boundary at the upper end of the isthmus of Panama, for fear the inquiry should shake his belief in the existence of North America. People of this kind quite consistently think Sludge to be merely a scoundrel talking nonsense. It may be remembered that they thought the same thing of Newman. It is actually supposed, apparently in the current use of words, that causistry is the name of a crime. It does not appear to occur to people that causistry is a science and about as much a crime as botany. This tendency to causistry in Browning's monologues has done much towards establishing for him that reputation for pure intellectualism which has done him so much harm. But causistry in this sense is not a cold and analytical thing, but a very warm and sympathetic thing. To know what combination of excuses might justify a man in manslaughter or bigamy is not to have a callous indifference to virtue, it is rather to have so ardent an admiration for virtue as to seek it in the remotest desert and the darkest incognito. This is emphatically the case with the question of truth and falsehood raised in Sludge the Medium. To say that it's sometimes difficult to tell at what point the romancer turns into the liar is not to state a cynicism, but a perfectly honest piece of human observation. To think that such a view involves the negation of honesty is like thinking that red is green, because the two fade into each other in the colors of the rainbow. It is really difficult to decide, when we come to the extreme edge of veracity, when and when not it is permissible to create an illusion. A standing example, for instance, is the case of the fairy tales. We think a father entirely pure and benevolent when he tells his children that a beanstalk grew up into heaven and a pumpkin turned into a coach. We should consider that he lapsed from purity and benevolence if he told his children that in walking home that evening he had seen a beanstalk grow halfway up the church, or a pumpkin grow as large as a wheelbarrow. Again, few people would object to that general privilege whereby it is permitted for a person in narrating even a true anecdote 
to work up the climax by any exaggerative touches which really tend to bring it out. The reason of this is that the telling of the anecdote has become, like the telling of the fairy tale, almost a distinct artistic creation. To offer to tell a story is, in ordinary society, like offering to recite or play the violin. No one denies that a fixed and genuine moral rule could be drawn up for these cases, but no one surely need to be ashamed to admit that such a rule is not entirely easy to draw up. And when a man like Sludge traces much of his moral downfall to the indistinctness of the boundary and the possibility of beginning with a natural extravagance and ending with a gross abuse, it certainly is not possible to deny his right to be heard. End of section 23